So very auspicious that it's uh, raining out and very wonderful. And um, yeah, I think um, retreats, at least many that I've been on through the many years, it, it seems to bring rainstorms. And um, we could really use them. We need more retreats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't had some good rain like this for a while. So, this is our first uh, Dharma talk. Appreciated. Um, Bruce had to share this morning, uh, launching us into the practice. Actually, Jill last night with uh, awareness of breathing and Karen bringing mindfulness into the body with movement, presence. And so we're coming towards uh, the end of at least of the end of at least uh, our full daytime of practice, heading into the evening, our first day, full day of retreat. <coughs> Perhaps already experiencing the multitude of joys and sorrows, sometimes known as the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Just sitting here, being present, things emerge. <clears throat> and we come for many different reasons, and perhaps some are to learn, to get to know ourselves more deeply, to deal with some of the pains and challenges in life, perhaps wanting to just grow deeper in wisdom and compassion. We are wondering, what is this life? So there's a... <coughs> A reading that was, uh, I'd like to read to you a reading that was written in the year three, 399, that's a long time ago, 399, by St. Augustine. It says, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains, and people wonder at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers and at the vast compass of the ocean, wondering about the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. <clears throat> Very powerful statement to observe our fellow humanity in the year 399, walking right past themselves without ever wondering, who am I? Who is this? What is this? Today I'd like to talk about what brings us here. What brings me here, I can say also from my own practice, and that perhaps has um, been really, uh, for me, bringing me into this practice is the mindfulness of my own death and that of uh, everyone that I know. That's what brought me to practice very clearly. So there's a reading from... <coughs> Jane Kenyon called otherwise and says that I got out of bed on two strong legs, it might have been otherwise. And you know, um, I can really appreciate that statement. I got out of bed on two strong legs, it might have been otherwise, because in my life so far, I learned to walk once when I was a toddler, baby, and then I broke my leg in the first grade and was in a hospital for six weeks with a compound fracture, had to learn to walk again. 
and three other times due to leg surgeries, infections, I had to walk and learn to walk again. It's about four times learning to walk. We take for granted we can get up on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. And I took the dog uphill to the birch wood that I love, and all morning I did the work that I cared for. And at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. And we ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day, just like this day, but one day I know it will be otherwise. One day I know it will be otherwise. <clears throat> so this is what really brought me to these teachings, was this sense of knowing that it was not going to last. So in some ways these teachings are very personal because they're about our human condition. When I was um, four years old, I remember this moment in my life where I had this uh, unmistakable and clear realization that it was not going to last and that I was going to die and that everyone was going to die. It was a striking thought to come up in my mind and heart and I was riding in the back seat of my parents' car going down Corey Hill Road towards my grandmother's house outside of Boston, Brookline. Massachusetts, and <clears throat> I remember saying to my mom and dad this realization that it wasn't going to last, that I could die at any moment, that anyone could die at any moment, and they were all going to die. <laughs> and my uh, mother and father very lovingly said to me, don't worry, Bobby, it's not going to happen for a long, long time. And I actually appreciated and can remember recall the feeling of being, you know, like understanding that they were trying to comfort me. But I also knew deep in my heart that they were not telling me the truth because I knew what I knew. It was, it was not going to last. And unfortunately, or whatever, the way my life unfolded, by the time I was nine, I lost my younger brother who died of an illness that I shared a room with. My best friend who I played every day with, Ellen Chabot, she lived across the street from me. She died from um, a went into a diabetic coma. And then my grandpa, who lived downstairs, who I was very close with, um, he passed away. So from a very early age, I was very hugely struck with loss and death. And in some ways, uh, what the Dharma speaks about is these heavenly messengers have come to awaken me at a very early age. We'll speak about more of the heavenly messengers as it, refer, it refers to the Buddha in just a little bit, but just to say briefly, the heavenly messengers 
It's kind of an ironic name for the heavenly messenger of the truth of aging, the truth of illness, the truth of death, but also this possibility of awakening and liberation. <coughs> the four heavenly messengers, and perhaps why they're called the heavenly messengers, because they awaken one up into the fragility and into the preciousness of this life. I'll just cough for a moment. Thank you for bearing with my coughing. So, unbeknownst to me, I was a very lost and confused young person while I was growing up because I was so lost and confused, I didn't even know that I was lost and confused and filled with grief. This is also coinciding with the Vietnam War and went through high school, barely making it. Um, I never even thought about college until I heard that some of my friends were going away. And I had a high draft number, so I wasn't drafted in the Army. And just the time of the draft and my number being called, the, the war got over. And um, graduated high school. Glad to be done with high school because that didn't mean anything. And was just very lost. And then a friend of mine said, well, he's, he's going to go to some kind of like military prep school in Harvard Square in Cambridge where you have to wear a suit jacket and tie and maybe that'll help you figure out <laughs> what to do to get to college later. And I didn't know what else to do, so okay. Put on a suit jacket and tie and go to Harvard Square. In the early 70s, it was <laughs> quite a place then. And um, it probably still is. And went to this school and still was very lost and wasn't meaningful at all, but decided I'd want to go to college because I got into downhill skiing and wanted to go to a place where I could ski mm -hmm. and get drunk and get high and try to find girlfriends. So I got into Linden State College in Lindenville, Vermont, where I majored in those things. <laughs> and I flunked out after my first or second year. I think it was my, after my second year. And um, was pretty successful in the first three, getting drunk and high, or the first two, getting drunk and high and skiing, so the first three, but the last one, girlfriends, was more difficult. But my mother, after flunking out and then being readmitted back on warning, pleading with me, Bobby, there's got to be something in the course catalog that would interest you. And so I looked... Didn't want any more reading, writing, arithmetic, and history, and science, because that didn't—it just didn't mean anything to me at the time. And then I something perked my interest. It said the wisdom of the East. Now, to be very honest, I didn't know anything about the East except for one thing, and that was um, growing up outside of Boston in a conservative Orthodox Jewish family. Uh, we would often go to kosher Chinese restaurants, and I loved Chinese food. And that was my only relationship to the East. I absolutely loved Chinese food. <laughs> you can tell I like to eat. And, um, you know, there was something about 
the, there was something more than just the food and the taste. The artwork, the Buddhas, the pictures, they were very mysterious and different looking than I ever saw. I was always kind of in ch like, what is this? It's so foreign from Howard Johnson's and Denny's. <laughs> the vibe was really different there. And so I thought to myself, what the heck, I'm going to go try this out. It's called Wisdom of the East, and the subtitle was Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. I had no idea what I was walking into. And so I, but I, you know, what the heck, everything else was not working. And so I went into this class, and my professor, the first thing I noticed was my professor was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. <laughs> I'd never seen or had a professor ever like this before. And he began to talk, and the way that he talked and held himself, he was unlike any other teacher I had ever seen or experienced or met or felt. He was, he, he kind of, I had a sense that he actually knew something. He was embodied. And as time went on, I realized whatever this guy knows, I want to know, I want to know what he knows. And he introduced to us to the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, and I began reading The Way of Life of Lao Tzu, and I couldn't believe that somebody had written about life in this way. And I resonated just almost immediately with these teachings of the Tao. And then I came across this epigram number 47, there's 81 epigrams of small poems, and epigram 47 speaks about that there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And that really struck something. It was pointing. If I want to know something, I need to begin to look inside here. Achan Chah speaks about, you want to study the Dharma? Study it here. Achan Chah is a famous, wonderful Thai meditation teacher. But that was the same thing. There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside. And that really began my meditative journey. Now almost actually over 40 years ago. And I ended up majoring in philosophy and religion, and you know I had quite a reversal ending up uh, in the honor society. Though I wasn't even interested in grades at that point because I just wanted wisdom, wanted understanding what was this life. It was feeding my spirit and began to realize just how lost I was as I began to look more inside myself. So after graduating in that northeast kingdom of beautiful Vermont, I ended up moving out to San Francisco and enrolling in a graduate school, California Institute of Asian Studies, and working on a master's in counseling psychology. And the institute was this fusion of Eastern and Western psychology, philosophy, religion, and wisdom, a very wonderful alternative graduate school. And there I met my very first, um, through a recommendation of a good friend, um, my very first Vipassana teacher I'll always be <laughs> deeply indebted to, Rina Sirkar. Mm. And um, she's not well right now, very mm. ailing. But she um, introduced me to the Vipassana meditation and um, went on my first, uh, I think it was like a nine-day Vipassana retreat. In those days, you get up at 4.30 in the morning, you sit an hour, walk for an hour, sit for an hour, walk for an hour. This was the Burmese hardcore style. and go up to about 10 at night. And, um, but something happened in that retreat. I got 
beautiful brain damage, never been the same ever since. <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. I remember on my first retreat, I coming from Vermont, I used to know how to handle wood stoves, and so I was the wood tender for that first retreat, and I, I got it so hot in there one day, people were going to kill me. <laughs> but it was after lunch, and I was really tired, and it was really hot, and I was sitting and meditating, and then I fell asleep, and I was a, this place was like a sardine can meditation hall, and I fell over, and I flattened this woman, her name was Osha, <laughs> right next to me, just flattened her. And of course, in those days, I didn't know anything about etiquette. Like, if I saw an empty pillow, oh, there's one that's empty, I go sit there. The one there, I'll go sit there. I was pissing people off left and right. I'm <laughs> sitting on their zafus. I didn't know that this is my zafu. This is where you're supposed to be. <laughs> but that retreat really um, changed my life. There's something about this acknowledgement as knowledge, just turning into acknowledge what's present. Begin to penetrate to begin more awareness to this changing nature of things. I was so taken by this retreat, I became a Vipassana junkie. Just whenever those retreats, I'd be taking them, and you know, as a college student, I had time, and I was a derma bum. <laughs> In some ways, I, like, I was managing retreats, and then Rena said to me, you want to go to Burma and meet my teacher and become a monk for a while? And I said, when are we going? And so on November 9th, 1980, myself along with Rena and a number of, of, of our friends, students, all flew to Burma and uh, there I met Tungpu Luciero, who's Rena's teacher, who I ordained temporarily with as a Buddhist monk and had this very powerful experience of, of living a life for a short period of time as a forest monk in this very remote area in Burma where the main source of transportation is ox cart. And um, yet within this very remote and like almost going back like a thousand years, I recognized there was a very advanced civilization. This was this monastic community that was built on such pristine qualities of, of kindness, of integrity, of steadying the heart and mind, of wisdom. It's like incredible. I, I, I thought to myself, I'm living in a highly advanced culture that's disguised by this third world with ox carts and crouching down latrines because there's no toilets and so forth. But it was a very different place to me. And I got to hang with these monks for uh, a long time because after I left uh, Burma, we came back to the United States and I helped with Rena and some others. We founded a, a Buddhist monastery, actually not too far from here, over the hill in Boulder Creek called Tungpulu Kabaye Monastery, where I stayed as a layperson for eight and a half years, practicing very intensively. The Dharma became my deepest refuge. And I didn't know all of these experiences had, had just really begun to um, help me to understand more about these messengers that I had met earlier in my life, the realities of of death when I realized my, at four years old that it wasn't going to last and of course the death of my brother, my best friend, and my grandfather who was aging and got sick and died. So there's those first three messengers of aging, illness, and death that I had met in my youth. And my fourth heavenly messenger actually was Bill Jackson, that professor sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position, embodying something and showing me that there's another way. He was the ambassador that there's another way. 
maybe pause for a moment. Who has been your messengers that have profoundly awakened you to aging? Could be your own body, could be someone you know. Who's your messenger of aging, of illness, of death, of perhaps pointing that there's another way, a way towards awakening, freedom? Just pause for a moment, just reflecting. Who's been your heavenly messengers? You may find that these messengers will be visiting. They have been visiting. They're here to awaken us. And the Buddha's story speaks of his encounter with these messengers that awakened in him the path to deep liberation. And just historically, we can say that the Buddha was born around 623 BC the age of 29, he encountered these heavenly messengers that set him on a path towards trying to understand the meaning of life that was experienced when he was 36. He passed away at the age of 80. The Buddha's name growing up was Siddhartha Gautama. He was in a royal family, a prince destined to become a great king. That's what his father's hope was. And after um, Siddhartha was born, it was very customary at those times to have some um, wise people come and take a look at the feet and the hands and the ears and the feelings. And, oh, yeah, this is going to be a great king. And So four of them, they were just raving about it. He's going to be this great king. But the youngest one said, no, nope, he's going to become a Buddha. And the father did not like that idea at all. Father wanted him to become a king like himself. And so the father somehow very much disturbed him. Even though this person was young, uh, this seer, sightseer, you know, this astrologer, there was something that just kind of scared him. And so he decided intentionally to keep his son filled with pleasures and nice things, palaces for every season, would move away people that were getting old and, and just somehow just kind of sheltered his life. He had all the latest gadgets. I think he had an iPhone 6 and, you know, who knows. He would have everything that, that perhaps a wealthy, well-educated person would have in these days and times. And when he was 29, he was, was married. He was actually um, expecting child and story goes that he went out of the palace grounds and came across these messengers 
was with his charioteersman named Chana. And, you know, he first encountered a, an old person, and when Siddhartha said to me, he said to Chana, who's this? And he goes, this is the person that's old, that, you know, no one can escape from aging. If you live long enough, you'll get old. And that kind of, like, shook Siddhartha up a bit. The next encounter was someone that was really, really sick. Siddhartha, due to maybe good fortune and perhaps just, just not having eyes open wide enough to see what was really going on around him, just somehow never saw illness and never thought that he would be prone to illness or anyone else. The next was coming undeniably to a lifeless body, a corpse, a dead person. And when asking China what's going on, this person's not moving, their color is different, and they're not breathing, and China said, this is a person that has died, and uh, no one can escape from death. This really deeply upset Siddhartha. Sometimes you think, you know, how could he not have known by the age of 29? But I don't know how old you are. But there's this old Hindu proverb, everyone thinks everyone else is going to die, but not me. And so sometimes we can even live a long time and somehow just not register or really get that it's going to change until it happens. And even then, it's so hard to believe, the irreversibility. So for whatever reason, kind of just blinded, lost in ignorance, lost in pleasures or whatever, it wasn't until he was 29 that as if his eyes opened up for the first time and realized, oh my gosh, this is real. WTF! <laughs> This is going to be happening. This is happening. And this last image of the heavenly messenger was of a monk, an ascetic, a holy person. And when Siddhartha saw this last messenger, a person walking by that was very different than the townspeople, the people in the palace, this person just, there was something to the air of this person that was serene, something that had substance and meaning and asked, well, who's this person? Goes, this is a person that's on the path to truth, to awakening. When Siddhartha heard that, he knew undeniably that this is what he must do. Actually, in Pali, there's a, Pali sometimes packs a punch with even just one word. So the, the Pali word for what he was experiencing is called thamweka. And thamweka means that when you have the awareness that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency to know what the heck is going on here, what is the truth. That's one word, thamweka. Catapults you into a sense of urgency. What is this? And so he had that big time. His father was hearing that he was leaving the palace. He was so upset. He was pleading with him, please don't go, please don't go. I can promise you anything. I'm, I'm a I'm like, Bill Gates, I have everything. And Siddhartha said, okay, then give me, three th give me three promises, and then I'll stay. The king was very excited because he's loaded. Sure, I can do this. And Siddhartha said, prevent me from getting sick, prevent me from getting aging, prevent me from dying. And the king couldn't do it. The, nevertheless, the king pleaded again. And then, uh, then Siddhartha said, how about two wishes? Prevent me from getting sick and dying. The king's, please, please, just begging him, just one, how about one thing, one thing? Sure, I can do one thing, is prevent me from dying. And at that point, the king knew that he couldn't convince his son to stay. 
And the story was that he left on the time that his wife was giving birth to a son. Now, I'll jump ahead a bit because you might be thinking, what, leaving his wife and the baby? Yeah, you know, I can understand. The good news is that he does come back to the palace later and teaches them what he learned and they all get enlightened. They all live, well, I won't say happily ever after, but, <laughs> but he comes back. And that's important to know that in the story that he does come back. He comes back to offer the royal inheritance, but not of kingship, but of arahantship, of enlightenment, of the truth, of the taste of the Dharma. So Siddhartha went off into the forest, and he was an excellent practitioner because he was fueled by this samweka, this samweka, like, what is this life? He was fueled. And very smart, very intelligent, very adept, and he in a fairly reasonable time, mastered whatever meditation master he went to, he mastered their practices. To the point where the teacher would say, come and sit next to me. We can teach together. You've learned everything that I know. And, you know, and, and still there's a deep seed inside of Siddhartha. This, I'm still, I still don't know. At the time, the meditative practices were very much on concentration. Bruce was talking about that this morning. Deep absorption in Pali called jhanas. Deep one-pointedness where you become at one with an object. Serenity, calmness, clarity, oneness. But even there, Siddhartha realized that this wasn't enough. There was something else. And so he left. And he heard about maybe through the punishment of the body, that's how I can wake up. And so he then began to practice very severe self-mortification, lowering his food intake down to one grain of rice a day till eventually when he felt his belly, he'd feel his tailbone. In near collapse, in exhaustion, near death, he realized the futility of, of punishing the body. He realized there's got to be a middle path or I need to take care of my body. And so he left these group of ascetics and began to care for himself, care for his body, get his health. And um, <coughs> eventually, after restoring his health, he found this beautiful tree. And he just decided, you know, he's been to so many different teachers and teachings and people and places and learnings and, you know, I, I, I don't want to go anywhere else now. I, I've learned as much as I can learn, and I'm going to just be at this tree, and I'm just going to stay here. This, the, you know, I, I, there's just nowhere else to go, and I'm going to just determine I'm going to stay at this tree, and, and I'm going to investigate what is this life. So this real commitment that there wasn't any other place to go anymore. I'm going to stay here. And so he sat underneath this beautiful tree and some, the story goes that he eventually recalled the memory when he was a young boy. And he was sitting underneath another tree overlooking some beautiful fields and meadows and some farmland. And 
the, the first felt sense was this feeling of just how beautiful this place was. And it just filled him with a sense of connection and joy. So he was kind of recalling this memory from so long ago. And then right on the, the next field in the farmland, it's the beginning of spring and the farmers were with their oxen and plow and because his sensitivity was so heightened, the feeling of just the beauty and the preciousness, like as he watched the, the blade go into the ground, like there's a change of feeling and all of a sudden he began to, to like almost feel like the pangs of these worms being cut open and, and then he was engulfed with a huge sadness. And he was left with this juxtaposition of the preciousness and the fragility of life. And so he also remembered at that time, as he recalled back, that he kind of self-soothed himself by going into some mindful breathing and getting very entranced. And perhaps as time went on, that memory kind of just faded, but he recalled it now again so many years later. And with now having mastered meditative absorptions and punishing the body through um, deprivation, he, something happened when he began to sit after this recollection that changed everything. Something different happened. Because what he, had, what he was, at one point, you know, he, he, had, he had mastered these meditative absorptions, but still didn't get the understanding of, of life. And this memory of the fragility and the preciousness, as he began to breathe in and out again at this point, rather than focusing and becoming one-pointed with the breath, he began to become aware of its breath in and the breath out. Bruce was speaking about that this morning, this mark of impermanence. This is a very different practice than absorption and concentration. Yes, he's using the concentrated awareness, but focusing on the breath in a concentrated way, but also being aware of its comings and its goings. And this subtle and yet very profound shift of attention awakened in him some deep, deep realizations about life. <coughs> As his um, momentum was deepening with this penetration and understanding of change, it is said that there was a celestial being, but you've already met him. He's come to visit you already today. His name is Mara. And Mara is the tempter. Mara says, well, you don't need to meditate. You can just get another cup of tea. Or let's just sleep in. Or let, us, let me just practice so hard that my hair will fall out. And so there's not a wisdom there. So Mara is like this tempter that is distracting the Buddha because the Mara does not want the Buddha to waken up. And so it's said that Mara charges with armies of fear as if arrows are being shot towards him. And, and the story goes that as the arrows are coming towards him, so the Buddha is encountering fear. 
He says to Mara, I see you, Mara. I see you fair. And it's supposedly, metaphorically speaking, those arrows turn into lotus blossoms because the fear can't touch him. Siddhartha's begun to have more of a quality of intimacy with the fear rather than the running away from the fear. There's, a, there's an intimacy. Actually, one of our friends just uh, who's living with a cancer diagnosis, um, she writes, I've learned that bravery comes not from fearlessness, but from a real intimacy of being with fear. I love that sense of the intimacy that we can begin to develop in our relationship in working with fear. And the Buddha developed an intimacy with fear and with all of these challenges that were coming at him. Fear, and then there was this thing of temptation and lust as the Maras cast upon um, lots of images of seduction, and yet the Buddha would say, I see you, Mara. So perhaps today, in our visitations, we've been visited with all these different fears and pullings and longings and pushes away and aversions, and, and so we can begin to meet them like the Buddha, I see you, Mara. This intimacy of working with our challenges leads to a quality of fearlessness. And this leads to, in the Buddha's case, a sense of a profound realization of the understanding of life, which is sometimes known as the Four Noble Truths, and Bruce is actually going to speak about them a couple of evenings, a couple of days. But these Four Noble Truths are really what I would like to say are powerful realizations that the Buddha experienced as Mara attempted to try to distract him, and the Buddha said, I see you, Mara. And this penetration of change and impermanence awakened within him this understanding of the these four great realizations and noble truths. So I'll just name them and they'll be unpacked more as the retreat goes. But the noble truth of suffering. And to acknowledge that suffering does indeed exist in the world. And then the noble truth of that this causes that fuel this. Our unawareness, our grasping, our aversion. And that there's a path to lessen and eradicate that through um, the Eightfold Path of deeping and developing deeper understanding of cultivating our virtue, concentration, wisdom. We'll go into more of this later. But this powerful understanding that arose as the Buddha turned his attention towards the changing nature of things that gave him deeper insight into suffering, its causes, the pathway to its lessening and gradual ending. It's important to know that this liberation that the Buddha experienced is not just for him alone. That the seeds of awakening are within all of us. Bruce referred the other day, yesterday, it seemed like about last week, uh, with the refuges, you know, take like one quality, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the historical Buddha, but it's also taking refuge in the qualities of awakening, that the awakening is within every one of us, and the teachings are the teachings of awakening, and the Sangha is the community that supports one another to awaken. So this is very possible 
for every one of us. When we speak about awakening, it's awakening from greed, hatred, and ignorance. Mm, wonderful rain. The cultivation of generosity, of love and compassion, of clear knowing. So I just want to offer to you that the seeds of awakening are inside you. Every one of you, no exception. And that we are all part of a lineage of those that have come before us, those that are practicing with us, that are wanting to awaken, that we are connected in community. And so I'd like to maybe end with just a, a little meditative reflection that my teacher Tungpu Lucero taught that offers us a taste of freedom and awakening in the here and now, because oftentimes we think this awakening—it's gonna happen. It's probably, you know, maybe I don't know, will it ever happen? And if it does happen, it's gonna be many lifetimes, or maybe later. I don't know. Like, is it really true? And so he offered this meditation for for each of us to have a few moments to experience what it's like to feel free. So maybe it's not so inaccessible. Maybe it's actually here in this moment if we open to it. So I want to offer you a few moments of a meditative reflection to invite the possibility that you can feel a sense of what someone that feels more free feels like. And that's a possibility. He also said this was a good meditation when you're dying, so it's a good way to go. And so just bringing awareness to the breath, just breathing in and breathing out. And just for these few breaths, just as you breathe in and breathe out, feel what it feels like in these few breaths that you're actually open to experiencing no types of wantings or cravings or graspings for anything. That there's a sense of ease, a sense of contentment that's here right now, just these few breaths, breathing in, breathing out, no greed. So remember, just these few breaths, you don't have to worry about the future. Sense of ease, a sense of contentment, which is the opposite of grasping and craving, breathing in, breathing out, feeling the freedom that comes with contentment. Then in the next few breaths, breathing in and breathing out and experiencing no hatred and inviting in those other qualities of compassion, of love, of connection, 
Just these few breaths, breathing in, breathing out, no hatred, no aversion, no pushing anything away, opening to a sense of not only contentment and ease, but the heart filled with compassion and love. And then in these next few breaths, breathing in and out, the sense that there's no ignorance to be experienced, this clear knowing. You're knowing you're breathing in as you're breathing in. You're knowing that you're breathing out in direct experience as you're breathing out. There's no unawareness here. Clarity, shining clarity. bringing these together, the qualities of ease and contentment without grasping, the qualities of the heart of loving kindness, compassion without hatred, the qualities of clarity, awakefulness, dispelling ignorance, unawareness, contentment, kindness, and clarity. This is the heart of one who is awakened that can be experienced here and now. The clarity of knowing of suffering, its causes, and experiencing the sense of ease, contentment, without want, without hatred, love, compassion, clear knowing. So may all beings find the gateways into their hearts and may they know peace.
Actually, I'll just end. Just want to end with one little reading. <laughs> it flew away. This is from Acham Buddhadasa, another wonderful Thai teacher. He says, Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. To understand this is to heal all illness and sorrow. Let yourself be still without grasping or resisting. The wise person lives with an open and free heart that does not cling to anything. This is the peace of nirvana. It is always here, available whenever we let go. So thank you so much. So we can just uh, continue sitting if you like, or going for a mindful walk. And um, it'll take us into dinner. You'll hear a bell at 5.30. It's just a little bit before 5. As you like. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.